This year, our Bible department has been preaching a series of chapel messages through the books of First and Second Samuel. And today we come to 2 Samuel chapter 9. So I encourage you to open your Bibles so that you can follow along the text of Scripture as we look at it this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 9. Then David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David... And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodibar. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, here is your servant. David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan, and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Again he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant, that you should regard a dead dog like me? Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, And all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to this text from your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come among us and in his silent but powerful way Guide us into your truth. And as I speak, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So what do we do with this story? We could say that it teaches that Christians should be kind to people with disabilities. And that would certainly be true. As a grandfather of a teenage young man who has significant disabilities, I would certainly applaud that. But is there more? Yes, there is. There is much more to this story. Actually, this story about David has powerful relevance for a key issue facing us today. 
but we'll have to do some work to get there. We'll begin by observing carefully this narrative in 2, Timothy, or 2 Samuel 9. And then we will make use of several other biblical passages that help us to apply it to our lives. We live in a culture in which people carefully curate their image, especially on social media. Posts produce perceptions. And what people perceive, they may well accept as true. And yet how a person is perceived may be quite different from what that person is actually like. So how do we cut through the clutter to know people as they truly are? In our studies in 1 and 2 Samuel, we have traced the ups and downs in the life of David since his youth, and there'll be more things to come. In 2 Samuel 9, David is firmly established as king over Israel. From a distance, we're impressed with his royal splendor, but what of the man? When we peer behind the image to view the reality, what was at the core of this king? David's a complicated figure, for he's described, on the one hand, as a man after God's own heart, and yet on the other hand, he was a man who was deeply flawed. He failed, sometimes spectacularly. But in this episode of his story, we get a sense of the measure of King David at the top of his game, and it is a beautiful thing to behold. The story begins in verses 1 to 4 with David's commitment. Many years before, David had made promises both to his friend Jonathan, the crown prince, and also to his antagonist, Jonathan's father, King Saul, not to harm their family should he ever ascend to the throne of Israel. In the ancient Near Eastern world, the standard practice was that a new king would destroy all his potential rivals and especially the family of the previous monarch. In fact, this is precisely what several later kings of Israel did. In 2 Samuel 9, we see that at the height of his power and with his throne now secure, David was counter-cultural. He remained true to his word to Jonathan and to Saul. In verse 1, David seems uncertain if there are any survivors left in Saul's family. He says he wants to show them kindness. The word kindness is the Hebrew word chesed. It's a word that can be used for fulfilling a promised covenantal obligation, but it means more than just discharging a duty, as this narrative demonstrates. David did not let changing circumstances becoming king, alter his commitment to Jonathan. He kept his promise, even though no one could have compelled the king to do that. A servant of Saul named Ziba is brought to the throne, and there he presents himself as a servant to David. Later on in the narrative, we're going to see that David becomes suspicious of Ziba, because Ziba becomes dishonest and insincere. And that may be foreshadowed here by his sudden shift of loyalty from being a servant of Saul to being a servant of David. 
as if he saw how the wind was blowing and set his sail accordingly. Saul had tried numerous times to kill David. And ancient Near Eastern kings typically disposed of any potential threats to their rule, but David did not take his cues from them. Rather, David said, I want to extend the kindness of God to any surviving relatives in Saul's family. He pandered his kindness on the kindness of God. This was not standard human response. This was David's imitation of God's kindness. Ziba described a son of Jonathan who was crippled in both feet. And we know from earlier in 2 Samuel chapter 4 that Mephibosheth, when he was just a toddler, had become lame because his nurse, as she was trying to escape the city after the news of Saul and Jonathan's deaths had arrived, dropped him in her hurry. And so here he was, a man lame in both feet, no military threat at all to David. David had nothing to fear from him. Ziba may not have known David's motives, but he did have to answer the king's direct question when David asked him, where is this son of Jonathan? For about 15 or 20 years, Mephibosheth had been kept safe from detection in the remote town of Lodabar in the northeastern part of Israel. But now, his cover was blown. In verses 5 to 8, we read of David's kindness. David acted on this information he received from Ziba. It says in verse 5 that David sent and he took, that is, he summoned Mephibosheth to the court. Now, Mephibosheth may well have had no clue about the promises that David and Jonathan had made to one another or the promise that David made to Saul. So we can only imagine the thoughts and fears that flooded Mephibosheth's mind and heart. What is King David going to do to me? He likely feared the worst. That's just how it was done. But he had no alternative but to comply with the royal summons. And so he arrives at Jerusalem at the capital. And in verse 6, for the first time in this narrative, Mephibosheth is named. He is Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul. That is, the direct descendant of the former king of Israel. As Mephibosheth came before King David, he fell prostrate before him. And we can only imagine how painful it must have been for a lame man to manage that and how painful it was for a kind king to see it. David then addressed him by name. He viewed Mephibosheth not as a rival or a threat to destroy, but as a person to value. And Mephibosheth replied, here is your servant. By his actions, by his words, Mephibosheth took a humble stance before his king. Now, it's evident that David had anticipated Mephibosheth's fear. 
And he elated immediately. He said, do not fear. And then he treated Mephibosheth with kindness. In 2 Samuel 22, a psalm that David wrote, he talks about the Lord's kindness to him. He says in that psalm, he is a tower of deliverance to his king and shows chesed, loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. David had been the recipient of God's kindness to him, and now he gave to Mephibosheth the same kind of kindness he had received. He had freely received it, and so he freely gave it. When Saul's family had fled the country after his death, likely after a period of time, their lands reverted to the crown. And so David was in control of them. And so what David does now is he pledges to restore all of Saul's lands to Mephibosheth. But he did more than that. But he said, Mephibosheth, I invite you to eat at my own table continually. And the author emphasizes that because four times it's stated in this chapter. This was a long-term commitment by David. It wasn't just a one-off kindness. Check it off, done, on to something else. So David restored to Mephibosheth the wealth and standing that he had lost when Saul and Jonathan died, giving him the status of a prince. Mephibosheth was understandably overwhelmed by this kindness. Likely he came to David expecting the worst, but David's kindness had exceeded all he could have imagined. Instead of turning against him as a threat, David had turned toward him in kindness. And Mephibosheth felt totally undeserving of all that David had done for him. In verses 9 to 13, we see David's generosity. In verses 9 and 10, David carried out the promise that he had made in verse 7. He gave all of Saul's former property to Mephibosheth. And he directed Ziba his 15 sons and his 20 servants to cultivate Mephibosheth's large estate for him. And while they work the fields, Mephibosheth will reside at the court with David. David fully honored his covenant with Jonathan in how he provided with such great kindness to Mephibosheth. He gave him security. He gave him status. Ziba accepted David's authority as king and agreed to do what he commanded. And so, while he was working in the fields, Mephibosheth ate at the court as though he were one of David's own sons. But then in verse 12, an additional intriguing fact is slipped in. Mephibosheth had a son, probably only a toddler himself at this time, a boy named Micah. He's never again mentioned in the Bible. Likely, Micah was a healthy, direct descendant of Saul. And therefore, he could be viewed as a potential threat to David's dynasty going forward. But David didn't let that prospect deter him from extending kindness to Mephibosheth. He took the risk. He did the right and God-honoring thing. So this chapter ends up Verse 13, with Mephibosheth moving from remote Lodabar to the capital in Jerusalem. 
And every day he ate at the king's table. And as he did that, Mephibosheth was reminded once again of David's kindness to him. Now that's a lovely story. But what's the point of it? What is the main point of this story? Well, it's clear when we look at this chapter that the key term in this narrative is kindness, or the Hebrew word chesed. We see it in verse 1, in verse 3, in verse 7. It is demonstrated in the way that David spoke to Mephibosheth and what he did for Mephibosheth. And so we could say that the main point is that David demonstrated his kindness by his generous treatment of Mephibosheth. Now, this passage is clear about what David did for Mephibosheth, but why? Why did he act with such kindness to this man? After all, in the ancient world, new kings made their thrones secure by destroying anyone who could conceivably mount a challenge to their rule. And as the direct descendant of Saul and Jonathan, Mephibosheth would have been first in line for the, for the throne of Israel. He was David's number one rival. Nevertheless, David did what was unexpected. But why? Some commentators have looked at this passage and viewed David through a cynical lens. They view him as an alpha male who exploited his power to get his own way, the kind of leader we hear a lot about these days. They've questioned David's motives alleging that David was putting Mephibosheth in a form of house arrest where he could keep his eye on him. That this was just a media event with an ulterior motive. It wasn't kindness at all. It was in reality David's hard-knuckled grasp of power. However, when we view this episode within its larger biblical context, a different picture emerges. And that is how we are intended to view what David does. At the end of the previous chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15, we have the biblical assessment of David's rule. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. We see from this verse that David's rule was marked by righteousness, not by self-promotion. Toward the end of 2 Samuel, chapter 23, verses 3 and 4, we read the last words of David, a song that he wrote. David says, The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after rain. We see from those verses that David's rule demonstrated his fear or his reverence of God. And as we know from Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so David ruled in wisdom. We've also seen in verse 3 that David's question asks, is there not anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And that question alludes back to Exodus 34, verse 3, 
where the Lord describes himself in these words. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in chesed, loving kindness and truth. And so David's kindness imitated the kindness of the Lord. When we put all of those biblical indicators together, what we see is that David's kindness toward Mephibosheth evidenced his firm commitment to godly character. Now, we've answered the what question, what did David do? And the why question, why did he act with kindness to Mephibosheth? But we also need to ask, so what? So what does this episode in the life of David mean for us today? How does it apply to our lives? This question lies at the heart of how we interpret and apply biblical narratives, the stories in the Bible. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, as Paul was writing to his young protege, Timothy, he said, all scripture is inspired by God. It's God's communication. It is God-breathed. And therefore, it is profitable. And he lists four benefits of God's inspired word. It's profitable for teaching. That is positive instruction about God and his will. It's profitable for reproof, negative instruction that points out our sins and inadequacies. It's profitable for correction, restoring us to the right path when we've gotten off of it. And it's profitable for training in righteousness. Our overall education in living rightly before God. And then in verse 17, he gives the goal for Bible study. It's not to amass more and more information. It's not to be able to win every award that Awana and Word of Life ever came up with. It's not to be able to ace Theo 1 and Theo 2. It is so. <laughs> one can wish. <laughs> it is so that the man of God, the Christian, may become thoroughly furnished unto all good works. He uses a term that speaks about our spiritual fitness. It's what he talks elsewhere when he says, being conformed to the image of Christ. The goal of Bible study is our spiritual formation, our development into the kind of people God wants us to become. And God does that through his word, including his Old Testament narratives like what we find in 2 Samuel chapter 9. When we read this narrative from the 10th century BC, in its broader scriptural context, what David did in 2 Samuel 9 speaks with incisive relevance to us in the 21st century AD. We can understand better the significance of this narrative in 2 Samuel 9 when we view it in the light of Psalm 101. Psalm 101 contains the coronation oath taken by the kings of Israel, perhaps even by David himself. In this psalm, in this oath, the king commits himself to righteousness, to right living as God measures it. 
In verses five to eight, he commits himself to righteousness in his public conduct. How he lives outside in those things that are observable by others. He says, whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. My eyes will be upon the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land so as to cut off from the city of the Lord all those who do iniquity. Righteousness in his conduct publicly. But in verses two to four of this oath, the king commits himself to righteousness in his character. He says, I will give heed to the blameless way. I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. In his character, he will live righteously, and that righteous character is what will direct his conduct. But he begins the oath in verse 1 by committing himself to righteousness as his core. He says, I will sing of loving kindness, chesed again, and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praises. In Psalm 89, verse 14, the same language is used to describe the kingly rule of the Lord. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. In this coronation oath, the king is committing himself to live by the Lord's pattern of kindness and justice. That core will drive his character and that character will direct his conduct. As the king's subjects heard his public oath, They had a clear standard by which to evaluate the quality of their monarch. And this was the standard that the Old Testament prophets used either to commend or to condemn the rulers of Israel and other nations as well. Now for us today, what is different is that most of us don't live in a monarchy. We live in a democracy where we vote for our leaders. And as a result, Psalm 101 is not just a standard for our leaders, it also has significance for all of us as citizens. Because we, unlike the ancient Israelites, have a voice in selecting our leaders, Psalm 101 is biblical instruction by which we should evaluate our leaders, pray for them, as Paul urged us to do in 1 Timothy 2.2, and vote for or against them. A generation ago, in the presidential election of 1992, most American Christians strongly insisted that character does matter. Even though one of the candidates, Ross Perot, publicly insisted that character is irrelevant to leadership, and another candidate, Bill Clinton, was widely rumored to have a significant character deficit. In this, Christians reflected their commitment to the biblical standard demonstrated by David and in Psalm 101 that character 
is crucial. In recent elections, however, many Christians have changed their tune with prominent voices insisting, we're voting for a president, not a pastor. In other words, character doesn't matter when it comes to electing political leaders. David would strongly protest that line of reasoning. He would ask, what is the character of this candidate? Where is his or her commitment to righteousness? Where is the kindness that leaders should demonstrate? If we, the people of God, are to live in obedience to the authoritative teaching of Scripture, then we must not blindly accept the image that curated by those who aspire to lead us. Rather, we must cut through that clutter to evaluate them as they truly are. And that means we must ask hard and perhaps uncomfortable questions. What is this person's character? When you peer past the image, what is the reality? What is the measure of this person who would be our leader? Will this person rule in righteousness, honoring what God regards as right or by some other inferior standard? What is the core that drives this candidate? Will this person imitate the Lord by kindness? or be ambitions for self-promotion. But David's example presses us a step further. It's not only instruction, it is also biblical reproof that may make us uncomfortable and perhaps even angry. Reproof is like a mirror we look at first thing in the morning that reveals what is good what is bad and what is ugly as we begin our day. Reproof may not be what we want to hear, but it is what we need to heed. The wise person heeds what the mirror reveals and makes the necessary changes. The foolish person ignores the reproof, takes his chances, and may well come to regret it. As Christians, we affirm that our allegiance is to the Lord above all, and that is how it should be. But is that truly the case? Or is it just the image we want to project? In this election year, as we evaluate the candidates who vie for our support, and as we vote, we demonstrate the core that lies behind our own curated image. We reveal to the watching world whether our primary allegiance is indeed to the Lord above all, or if in fact our allegiance is rather to country, to party, to political ideology, to a legislative agenda, or to our preferred candidate. Godly values must not just perch on the circumference of our lives, but they must penetrate to the center and control all we do. At this momentous time, when so much is at stake, David's firm commitment to godly character challenges us as Christian citizens to renew our primary allegiance to the Lord and to what he values above all. 
For unless our Lord is above all, then he is not truly our Lord at all. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, our King who rules over all in righteousness, justice, steadfast love and faithfulness, and who requires that we do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with you, grant us wisdom to know how to walk before you. Grant us courage to choose what pleases you. Grant us hope that you will reward those who remain faithful to you as we dwell as pilgrims in this culture that increasingly abandons your way so that we may bring glory to you, our King, our Father, our Savior. Amen.